You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. As our listeners who are in Canada would know, one of the things that is on the minds of many people who are into true crime, in this country especially as of late, is the way that criminals are treated when in prison, and the ways that they are sometimes seemingly lost in the system when they get out. In Canada, we've recently had Paul Bernardo, a convicted serial killer and serial rapist, moved from maximum security prison to medium security prison because it was deemed as the logical next step according to what the goals are of the prison system in this country. We also have had the very recent case of a convicted sex offender and trafficker who was found to have been living on his wife's property where she also ran a camp for children on the autism spectrum after he served his time and seemingly stopped facing as many checks and balances. Heck, we even had Carla Homolka years ago found to be working within a daycare because she was given an assumed name and a new life. This week, we're going to look at the American equivalent from within Ohio. In 2016, a vibrant 20-year-old woman was murdered by someone who had previously served only three years of a sentence for a previous and similar crime. We're going to look at changes that happened far too late for the woman at the center of our story and far too late to stop a monster from committing an eerily similar crime for a second time. Hello, my name is Lance and welcome to episode 90 of Gone But Never Forgotten. More checks and balances needed on violent criminals. The murder of Sierra Joggin. Sierra Catherine Joggin was born on February 11th of 1996 in Sylvania, Ohio, to her parents Sheila Vakulik and Tom Joggin. Sierra graduated from Evergreen High School in 2014, and she was given the nickname C by her friends. At the time of her untimely death, Sierra was studying at the College for Business at the University of Toledo, and she was studying human resource management, and she was also interning at a metal stamping business that was owned by her uncle. On July 19, 2016, Sierra was out with her boyfriend, Josh, for the afternoon of bike riding. The two were in rural Fulton County, just west of Toledo, Ohio. Sierra was living with her grandparents in Metamora, Ohio. The two were riding along together around 6.45 p.m., 
and they decided to part ways near County Road 6, which was close to Metamora, where Sierra lived. She had a short ride ahead of her, and Josh, who lived elsewhere, turned around to ride home, saying that he would talk to her later that evening. Later that night, Sierra's mom, Sheila, showed up at her parents' home to visit, and she noticed that the lights were not on in Sierra's room, and she thought that that was certainly unusual, because Sierra would usually let everyone know when she would be out for the night so that they wouldn't show up when she wasn't home. Around 10.30, though, things went from concerned to panic. Around 10.30, Sheila got a call from Josh, and he asked if Sierra was there. Sheila, of course, said that she wasn't there, and Josh said that he had sent multiple text messages to Sierra's phone, but he hadn't received any response. He then said that he had also tried to call multiple times, but that all of his calls were going straight to Sierra's voicemail. Sheila would also try at that point to call Sierra a few times, and when she kept going straight to voicemail, she got in touch with the police and reported Sierra as missing. At this point, everyone was out to try and locate Sierra. The police asked if Sierra's bike was at the home so that they could determine if she had ever even made it home, and it was confirmed that Sierra had not been back to her grandparents' house from her bike ride with Josh. Police, of course, talked to Josh as he was seemingly the last person known to see her alive. Josh showed them a Snapchat video that showed her on her bike and having a good time with him. While watching the video, the police thought that they may have their first break. They noticed that Sierra was wearing a Fitbit watch. So, police started to try and track Sierra's phone and her Fitbit. Police also started to search the area around County Road 6 where Josh had left Sierra. As they were looking around, they found a section of cornfield alongside the road that had a disturbance. Some of the stalks of corn had been broken. As the police moved in a few rows, they came across Sierra's bike and they found blood on the handlebars of her bike. Sadly, the side of the county road where they found her bike was only about a half a mile from her house. Also found at the scene were Sierra's sunglasses, another pair of sunglasses that were not hers, a screwdriver, and a motorcycle helmet that had the appearance of blood on it. Police did not find any evidence of Sierra, though, and so they determined that it certainly looked like some kind of disturbance had occurred on the side of the road, and they believed that it looked like Sierra had been abducted. That meant that they had to start widening out their search for evidence, and they needed to start looking for witnesses and clues. As police fanned out and started to talk to people who lived in and owned land in the area, one of the men that they came across was a man named James Worley. James lived on a three-acre property that was just west of Toledo and nearby to where Sierra had disappeared. James ran a small engine shop out of his home, and he lived with his mother and his brother. When the police asked him about that stretch of road along County Road 6, James said that he was very familiar with that area that they were talking about. He said that he actually had been there earlier that day. 
He said that his motorcycle had broken down in that exact same area. He said that while he was stopped there, he had lost his helmet, a screwdriver, sunglasses, and fuses for his motorcycle. Does that sound familiar? Having a weird sense of deja vu as you listen here? I assure you that that was the precise list of items that the police had found in the cornfield with Sierra's bike. That wasn't the only puzzling thing that James would say to police, however. He told them that he didn't steal anything or kill anyone. Police also noticed that James had bruising and marking that was consistent with a physical fight on his arms and legs, and police didn't waste any time. They immediately secured and searched his property. Another witness would also tell officers that he saw a passenger van speeding very quickly in the area earlier that night, and he was able to provide a license plate number to police as well. That plate number would come back as being registered to one James Worley. As officers spread out and started to search the property, they started to find plenty of puzzling and worrying things. They found tape, zip ties, and rope. They would find firearms and ammunition, and they found recording devices and film. Perhaps most hauntingly, inside of one of the barns on the property, police would find what they would only describe as a dungeon or a torture room. They said that the room was hidden behind a large pile of hay bales and was not easy to find. Inside of that room, there were restraints that were attached to the walls, and there was a freezer nearby that had the appearance of blood inside of it. There were also two pairs of underwear located inside of the room, and one of the pairs had blood on it. Officers also noted that there was a strong smell of bleach, but again, no sign of Sierra. Inside of James's truck, they would find more zip ties, a ski mask, two different sets of handcuffs, more rope, and more tape. It was believed that Worley either knew something about Sierra or something about another case entirely, but he wasn't willing to talk whatsoever. Without being questioned, he simply asked how someone could kidnap someone else when they were on a motorcycle. Nonetheless, inside of the barn, investigators would find Sierra's DNA on a piece of duct tape and on an inflatable mattress. Phone records would also show that Worley was in the area where Sierra's bicycle was found for approximately two hours during the time frame that Sierra went missing. The evidence was mounting up and it was becoming clear that Worley was someone that had, at the very least, something to do with Sierra's disappearance. One of the other things that raised alarm bells for the police was when they found out that he had a court-mandated therapist and that after a prior conviction, he had told the therapist that he, quote, learned from each abduction he had done and the next one he was going to bury, unquote. James Worley was officially arrested on charges of abduction on July 22, 2016, just three days after Sierra had disappeared. One of the things that investigators were most concerned about was the fact that Worley fit the description of a serial offender. They believe that there may be people or remains located elsewhere 
on his property. Exhaustive efforts to find evidence, though, came up empty at his property, as there was nothing additional to be found. I suppose that this is as good a time as any to lay out what Worley had done in the past. James Dean Worley was born on April 6th of 1959 in Tacoma, Washington, and he graduated from Evergreen High School in Metamora, Ohio, the same school that Sierra had graduated from. In July of 1990, Worley would attack and ambush a young woman named Robin Gardner, who was out riding her bike in Whitehorse, Ohio. Worley had hit Robin with his truck on purpose, and then when she fell into the ditch, he rushed over to act like he was going to help her. Instead of helping Robin, however, he hit her over the head and dragged her into his truck, handcuffed her, and cut her leg with a screwdriver. At that point, Robin had started screaming, and Worley told her to do whatever he said, or he was going to kill her. In that case, though, Robin was able to escape out the other side of the truck, and she ran to a man who she found nearby. The man brought her to her home, and then crimes were reported to police. When Worley was questioned and arrested, he said that he had not assaulted her, and that he had only restrained her because he deemed that she was trying to flee the scene of an accident because she had cut him off in the truck. Eventually, Worley would plead guilty to abduction, and he was sentenced to four to ten years in prison, but ultimately he would be released from prison after serving only three years as he petitioned for early release. So, as you can see, police knew what they were potentially dealing with. They knew that they had a very bad man, and they were right. Worley was indeed a serial offender. The crossover in those two abductions are very obvious. Unfortunately, things in the case would change a lot more on the same day that Worley was charged with abduction, though. Around 6 p.m., the remains of Sierra were discovered in a shallow grave in a field that was along County Road 7 in Delta, Ohio, just 12 miles to the southwest of Worley's property. Sierra's body was found intact, although she was hogtied, and had a plastic large toy of some kind in her mouth, which had been used as a gag, and she was wearing an adult diaper. Sierra's death would be ruled as asphyxiation, which had been caused by the makeshift gag. Additionally, there were no signs of sexual assault, and a time of death could not be determined. On August 16th of 2016, just under a month after Sierra had been abducted and killed, Worley was indicted on 19 different charges, and he was held without any opportunity for bail. The charges that were included were charges for aggravated murder, kidnapping, felonious assault, abduction, tampering with evidence, possessing criminal tools, having weapons while under a disability, and abuse of a corpse. At his arraignment, Worley, Worley pled not guilty to all charges. It was determined that the prosecution would seek the death penalty for the aggravated murder charge, and of course, there would be delays between charges being laid and the court case taking place. 
The trial was delayed in September of 2017 and again in January of 2018. And finally, the trial would get started in March of 2018 in Wasion, Ohio. Judge Jeffrey Robinson was to preside over the trial. The prosecution would present their case, and that was that there was absolutely zero doubt that Worley was the person that had caused Sierra's death. They intended to use cell phone information, DNA, recorded interviews, testimony, and data from his electronics to prove that Worley was guilty beyond any reasonable doubt. Scott Hazelman would tell the jury that their job was simple. They were to follow the trail of evidence. They presented that Worley had watched pornography up until he left his home to commit the crime. He had used search terms to find the pornography that he wanted, and his search terms used were rape, forced, hitchhiker, stranded, helpless, and gag. The prosecution then believed that he had ambushed Sierra after coming across her on County Road 6, and he had struck her in the head with his motorcycle helmet. This was proven by the fact that Sierra's DNA was found on the motorcycle helmet that belonged to Worley. They then believed that Worley had waited in the cornfield until it was dark outside and had taken his motorcycle back to his property and rushed back with his passenger van. That was presented as evidence because of the eyewitness who saw that van in the area at the time of the crime, and he then loaded Sierra into his van and returned to his property. From there, he left behind some of her bloodstained clothes at his house, and he had also hogtied and gagged her. The gag had been shoved into her mouth in such a way and so viciously that it had knocked one of Sierra's teeth out, and Sierra had died from asphyxiation. And after that, Worley had transported her body again and speedily buried her on the side of County Road 7. The defense certainly had a case because while what the prosecution presented seemed logical, possible, and probable, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that was tied together. The defense said that everything that was obtained from the barn had been a part of a plan by Worley to build a pornography studio that he was intending to start. They also said that the blood on the helmet that matched with Worley was very minimal, and that could be explained because it was indeed his helmet. However, they said that the helmet could have been used by anyone else after he left it behind when he had problems with his motorcycle. The defense would also show that there was no actual real evidence that the helmet itself had been used as the blunt force trauma weapon, even though it had both Worley's and Sierra's DNA on it. In the end, though, it seemed that even though there was quite the chain for the evidence, it was pretty clear that A, the evidence did tie together, and B, the defense didn't seem to have a really solid refute to the charges either. The jury in the case would deliberate for six hours and would ultimately find James guilty. As we laid out in previous episodes, Ohio is another state where it is the job of the jury, based on evidence, to determine if there are any mitigating factors in the life of the criminal that they believe show, 
that they should receive a life sentence rather than a death sentence. They ruled that with Worley, they didn't believe there were any. As a part of his sentencing hearing, Worley would make a 45-minute statement that everyone in that courthouse said was rambling and disjointed at best and certainly incredibly offensive because of things that he said and the ways that he said them. In his statement, he said that he had not killed Sierra and he had been framed by someone else. He said that Sierra was a beautiful girl and that the loss of her was a substantial blow to everyone. The defense would try to have Worley sentenced to life in prison because of his sexual sadism connected with a fetish disorder. The prosecution stated that the gravity of the crimes outweighed any issues that Worley has or had. The jury had recommended capital punishment and Judge Robinson upheld that recommendation on April 16th of 2018 and he said, quote, If I thought there was a snowball's chance in hell that you were innocent, you'd be looking at a life sentence, unquote. Worley was also sentenced to 11 years for kidnapping, 8 years for felonious assault, 11 months for possessing criminal tools, and 3 years each for tampering with evidence and having weapons under disability. From there, Worley was moved to death row at the Chillicothe Correctional Institution the next day, April 19th of 2018. His original execution date was set for June 3rd of 2019, but that was delayed in June of 2018. His execution was again delayed in August of 2018 because of appeals that were being filed. In July of 2020, Worley's attorney filed for the Ohio Supreme Court to overturn the conviction from his trial and give him a brand new trial. They said that among other things, Worley's mental illness was not taken into account, his counsel was incompetent, there were problems with the jury, and there were rules broken as pertains to evidence. Most of these are incredibly common delay tactics. The appeals would be denied by the courts, and his execution date was set for, and continues at present time to be, May 20th of 2025. Thankfully, that is not where this story ends. There have been a couple of cases presented on the podcast where we've shown that some good can come out of situations like this one. But sadly, no matter how good those positives are, they cannot outweigh the life or lives that were lost. This is one of those cases, though, where things have changed in the wake of this unnecessary murder. There are two major developments that the family has fought for and taken part in since Sierra's murder. The first of which is Sierra's Law. Sierra's family was appalled at the local law enforcement and residents were unaware of the fact that there was a convicted felon living in their own backyard. They said that they believed that there should be a system in place to at least let the public know if there were offenders living in their area. The family was told that Worley was not on any local, state, or federal database that tracked offenders. In July of 2016, the organization Standing Courageous started a petition for a law to be put into place that established a violent offender registry in the state of Ohio. 
This registry would be for people convicted of things like murder, kidnapping, and abduction. The bill was passed on December 6th of 2018 and was signed into law on December 19th and went into effect on March 20th of 2019. Sierra's law created a database that can now be used by law enforcement and everyday citizens to find out where violent offenders live. The database is primarily for law enforcement use, but the public can go into a county sheriff's office to request information. The second positive development is the creation of Justice for Sierra which is an organization that is committed to doing everything they can to educate people so that no one else needs to meet the fate that Sierra met. In the community, Sierra Strong is a self-awareness and defense program that is given free of charge. They aim to teach people between the ages of 6 and 16 how to defend themselves in dangerous situations that may arise. They also provide laminated IDs that show a photo of the child, fingerprints, and vital statistics to help in finding that child if they do indeed go missing. Sierra Strong has now also started working in the schools with middle, middle school age students to try and arm them with the knowledge, skills, and information to protect themselves. Obviously, none of this is going to ever bring back Sierra Joggin. But she is certainly looking down from the heavens at the work that her family and friends have done and are still doing, and she is proud. Proud that her death was not in vain, and proud that kids in Ohio and everywhere are learning how to protect themselves so that hopefully many more lives can be saved. This one is heartbreaking and, of course, as I stated off the top, frightening on so many levels. We've all heard of cases in our own backyards where a convicted felon gets out of jail and reoffends, or finds themselves in situations that they're not supposed to be in. It's definitely not a good feeling to know that likely more of us have violent offenders living in our midst than don't, and hopefully this is something that can get fixed on some level and everywhere. In a world where we're trying to rehabilitate criminals rather than give them the death penalty or keep them locked up, there should be ways for the public to look into things and feel better, and there certainly is no excuse for law enforcement not having those kind of tools at their disposal. Privacy of criminals be damned, if you ask me. If someone goes missing in my neighborhood, I want to know that the first place the police are able to check is with former offenders. Hop over on social media and let's talk about that. What kind of registries do you think are pertinent to the world around us when it comes to criminals and former criminals? How much privacy should a violent offender have and how much privacy is too much? Come share your opinions with me, and of course, don't forget to come back here next week for episode 91 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Until then, be safe, and of course, be better.